Welcome to episode 239 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government today. I'm joined for the news roundup by Dr. Megan Reese, uh, a senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute, senior editor at Lawfare, and a fellow at the National Security Institute. Uh, Megan, wel- welcome. Thank you. And uh, also uh, on the phone, uh, uh, two uh, uh, graduates of the National Security Division at DOJ, David Chris, who used to run it, uh, and Nate Jones, who uh, uh, worked there, then went to Microsoft, uh, went to the National Security Council, uh, uh, and both of them now at Culper Partners. Uh, David, Nate, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, your host for today, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, um, uh, and maybe still the only one who, the person who's had policy jobs at both of those places. I once described it as myself as the child of a broken marriage. Um, uh, so... Why don't we start with a victory lap? We all, uh, uh, not everybody here, but uh, uh, David and, and I at least, uh, maybe Nate, uh, said um, uh, last week we did not expect the uh, uh, Russians or anybody else to successfully hack uh, the electoral process. And it looks as though uh, uh, there may have been a lot of uh, stuff uh, uh, that happened, but hacking does not appear to have been part of it. So, David, congratulations. Yeah, uh, we, um, we it look, looks that way. Although, as you say, we've uh, we have enough complexity just on our own to make it interesting for an extended period of time. Yes, well, I, I, we'll be we'll be fighting about Florida at least for a long time, and uh, that's deja vu all all over again. Uh, and the Internet Re- Research Agency uh, is kind of, they're looking kind of sad, trolling Americans, saying, "See, you you just can't trust your elections, can you?" Uh, as though they had done something. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, history there is repeating itself as farce. Um, uh, so, I want to ask a, a start with a story that really is only the uh, uh, the bits and pieces of it have have emerged, and maybe there's no story here. But I I am struck by the fact that the uh, Justice Department has faced FISA uh, challenges to evidence in a Chinese case involving heads of state uh, in Africa, allegations of bribery, uh, and then Bob Mueller has tossed the. Uh, a Concord Management Company into the trolling criminal case, uh, and uh, Concord is clearly demonstrating an enthusiasm for litigating everything. They can keep showing up; they don't have to worry that they're going to go to jail automatically. Uh, uh, and so, uh, there's been uh, uh, quite a bit of um, uh, activity uh, uh, with respect to FISA, and I'm wondering whether uh, uh, FISA is going to uh, have difficulty surviving. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the challenges that uh, uh, Bob Mueller and the National Security Division are inviting, but uh, David, uh, am I am I wrong to think that there's a problem here? Um, well, I don't think it's uh, as severe a problem necessarily as you do. So the first case is one brought by NSD and the Southern District of New York, in which some Chinese officials. Are, uh, Chinese persons are charged with a scheme to bribe the president of Chad and the foreign minister of Uganda in order to secure contracts to drill for oil. Uh, this is a sort of a 
regular order Foreign Corrupt Practices Act case um, in the continent of Africa uh, with fake charities set up to funnel the, the bribes, um, which is a fairly conventional tactic these days. Um, and unsurprisingly, perhaps there is FISA coverage, I guess, on these foreign leaders and officials that comes into play. And Loretta Presca, the judge, has denied a suppression motion uh, brought by the defendants uh, following the unbroken tradition of doing so. And she's also refused to give them disclosure of the FISA applications. Um, so that feels pretty routine. Uh, there was one case in which a district judge did order disclosure of FISA, and the Seventh Circuit promptly slapped that down um, in an opinion by Judge Posner, as I recall. Um, you know, the funny thing today is whether that unbroken record will continue even after the shenanigans with the Carter Page FISA, which obviously involved the first time that a FISA application or any part thereof ever saw the light of day. Um, apparently, Judge Preska was not impressed by that as, uh, as sort of busting the dam and allowing for more exposure. And so she's hewed to the traditional line. Um, in Concord Management, it's a little less clear exactly um, what's going on. Um, but I agree with you, Concord is going to pursue a standard, aggressive, sort of gray male style posture, among other things that it can do. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Bob Mueller in the Southern District of New York and NSD have gone through the usual equities process here to balance what can be used and what can't be used and what can be protected by SEPA or FISA or any of the other statutory mechanisms. And um, I suspect it, it will ultimately shake out as business as usual. So he's handed it off to the uh, uh, Southern District, but the, that's after he actually announced the indictment. Is that right? No, no, I was, I was, uh, I think Concord Management is still being handled by ah. him. The, the FCPA. Oh, okay. Case. The, it's the other case that's uh, uh, Southern. Southern District. Okay. Um, so I, I am, I'm a little troubled because I've been on the other side of this issue uh, uh, from an intelligence equity point of view. Uh, um, and it's always been my perception that at the end of the day, um, the Justice Department is restrained from bringing these cases, even if they expose intelligence equities, only by a, a sort of interagency process in which eventually you could get to the president. But of course, um, uh, if somebody doesn't think that Bob Mueller should be putting intelligence equities at risk, uh, they don't get to go to the president. Do, uh, doesn't the decision rest with Bob Mueller at the end of the day? Um, you know, <laughs> it is a very interesting question what would happen if it worked its way all the way up. Because, of course, my experience on the DOJ side of this was always that, um, you know, if the intelligence community really uh, puts its foot down and throws a temper tantrum, the prosecutors back off and don't use the disputed take. Um, but you're right, it does escalate up the chain. Um, it would be, a you know, ultimately through, I guess, Matt Whitaker now. Um, that would be fun. Um, I'm sure he's a real expert on FISA equities. Yeah, and, and, and then on to John Bolton, right? <laughs> I think on to John Bolton. And, and frankly, that is probably where it would come to rest because for either the traditional DOJ folks who would be pushing this or for the traditional intelligence community folks who would be pushing the other direction, I'm not sure either one of them would want to try to escalate this to the uh, to the president. It's certainly in the Concord management case, just because 
probably the president, if he were rational, would say, I should recuse myself and not weigh in on the equities in a case in which I am a subject of the investigation. Uh, but this president probably wouldn't do so. And I'm not sure that the traditionalists at either DOJ or an intelligence agency would ever want to have that possibility presented. So, <laughs> well, there, it, so it's working. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the price of escalation is always high if you lose. But the price of escalation here would be exquisitely high and would, uh, I guess, to put it in the in the terms that Trump might put it, you know, might threaten the long term equities of the deep state. Um, and so I suspect each side would probably live with whatever Bolton decided. All right. Lots of China news this week. Uh, Megan, uh, uh, Give us a feel for where all of the China stories are going. So apparently China surveils its citizens. Oh, no. <laughs> new, <laughs> groundbreaking news. Um, yeah. But now, now it, it turns out that that's also a, an exportable uh, industry. Yeah, from the U.S. even. Yeah. Uh, but exporting it in their particular surveillance um, goals to countries along the Belt Road. So, yeah. well, so, and, so and you, 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 it, it's not really a surprise. If you're a, uh, a, a third world dictator uh, and you've got a choice of buying sort of uh, a package of communications technology that comes with sort of uh, freedom enabled mm -hmm. uh, and one that comes without, uh, you're going to take the, the second, aren't you? Or more than that, if, if you're considering a deal from the Americans who say, we'll give you fairly cheap technology, but you have to reform some of your human rights practices, or you go to China and they say, we'll give you even cheaper technology. But yeah, by the way, here's a package that will help you surveil your citizens even better better and potentially jail them. Um, which are you going to choose? And so this is this is no surprise, but it's uh, we're starting to see stories that uh, we're starting detail how that's happening and how enthusiastically people are responding. It's what people have been expecting. And it's been associated with all these contracts that we're seeing along the Belt Road that are helping these governments inch closer and closer to China as we kind of let this happen. So the, the particular story that you highlighted for us this week is that China is getting better and better at surveilling gates. So people like walk. people walk. Yes, they're basically saying they have 94% accuracy now to be able to identify an individual with no no facial recognition going on simply by how they walk. And not only is it how they walk, if they try to deliberately change their gait, if they try to limp, for instance, they'd still be able to detect those individuals. Yeah. So, and the U.S. has tried to get in on this technology before in the early 2000s in order to catch terrorists, didn't get as far, but... No, that, that, that was the TIA. That was yes. the terrorist, uh, the uh, Total Information Awareness Program. And, uh, and uh, uh, Congress killed it. And I, mm -hmm. I remember this one because really? uh, I, was, I was following it pretty closely and the ACLU and EFF and folks like that mm -hmm. went to Congress and they made fun of gate recognition. Okay. Uh, calling it, uh, well, this is the must be the Ministry of Silly Walks from Monty Python, <laughs> oh uh, and uh, um, uh, managed to, to 
kill U.S. research on that uh, um, and guarantee the market for the Chinese. Yeah, well, apparently when the U.S. was doing it, they were hoping that they'd be able to detect or they actually developed the ability to detect someone who was holding an explosive under their jacket, for instance. Well, the Chinese are already saying they want to use it to catch jaywalkers and I'm sure contribute to the social credit score and all the uncomfortable technology that is popping up recently. Well, the one other story that I thought was really interesting is the Australians, uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute had a report out on how the PLA is getting access to all this technology. David, did you look at that? I did. It's another news flash. The People's Liberation Army uh, are going abroad to study at um, Five Eyes universities, uh, heavily focused on Australia, which is obviously geographically very close. Um, The Chinese call it um, picking flowers abroad to make honey in China. That is a very (laughs) political description. Um, And, um, you know, apparently it happens a lot and the trend is increasing. There have been about 2,500 PLA officers uh, sent abroad over the last decade, this report says. Most of them have come openly, um, and uh, but some have been more clandestine, uh, trying to hide their affiliation. Um, you know, obviously the Chinese are very explicit in undertaking this effort, um, and they also try to steal technology other ways. Uh, the report basically says that universities in Australia need to get into a better partnership with the Australian government to deal with the counterintelligence concerns. Uh, that are created by these PLA officers doing joint research with Australian scientists. Um, you know, in the U.S., of course, you, you can't get approval to have foreign military officers participate in classified research that gets conducted at the university level. But I think the, the question here is, you know, are the borders there a little fuzzier than we might like? And are the scientists who may be working in part on classified research and in part on unclassified research potentially uh, targets of recruitment uh, if they are, uh, you know, bumping up against uh, Chinese military or intelligence officers? And I think that to some degree is a legitimate concern. I'm not terribly optimistic that um, Australian or American universities are going to welcome a, a, a much more intimate partnership with governments to deal with these counterintelligence concerns. But the report is interesting um, in just documenting some of the trends here anyway. No, I think the universities, of course, are going to be upset at anything that um, looks like it might constrain their revenue flow uh, uh, from tuition and uh, and grants. Uh, uh, and uh, and then they'll invoke academic freedom as part of their uh, uh, effort to keep that uh, um, uh, flowing. This, uh, this yep. just reminds me so much of the AQ Khan story from back in Pakistan, that he learned how to start the, pro- the nuclear program while working abroad in, in right. laboratories. Just learn from history on this. Stuff. Yeah, my guess is uh, not going to happen. But uh, I, I, agree. I, I have to say, it's really interesting that the Australians are having the debate that we really haven't had. This is the most important political debate or just about uh, in Australia, the question of what's Mm -hmm. their relationship with China, what are they going to allow the Chinese to do, what kind of equipment are they going to buy from China. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is nothing we are debating that they have not debated at higher volume and uh, with more detail. 
sounds like a good podcast, I think. Yes. Uh, all right. We'll bring the Aussies up uh, <laughs> and uh, ask them what we should be doing. Uh, and I'm sure they'll have plenty of advice. Uh, I've never met an Aussie who was pretty free with his, his advice. Uh, okay. Um, chapter 212 in uh, the uh, uh, story of Silicon Valley versus conservatives. Uh, um, Facebook and broadcast media actually just said, you know that ad that uh, Donald Trump wants to run? We will not run it. Uh, uh, the implication is they think it's racist or shocking or abusive. I listened to it. Uh, it's It's got a illegal immigrant uh, uh, saying uh, about a couple of uh, police he, he killed. Well, my only mistake was not killing more of the uh, unprintable uh, uh, folks. Uh, and then uh, uh, the Trump campaign saying uh, uh, Democrats will be complicit in all the murders committed by illegal immigrants. I, you know, that sounds like hard-nosed political rhetoric. I'm not sure I, I quite understand uh, why that's being taken down by either social media or kind of remarkably even by Fox TV. Nate, you got a, uh, any uh, thoughts on that? Uh, uh, am I just misreading this? Uh, am I um, ha having seen Willie Horton ads in my lifetime? Am I just uh, in, uh, inured to uh, uh, improper campaigning? Maybe. Um, I'll take the opposite position. I mean, I think it was a pretty, I guess two things. One is it was pretty clearly by bringing up the caravan a manufactured issue at the last minute to try to tip the election in the Republicans' favor. Um, and it did so, at least in my opinion, in, in a pretty inflammatory and arguably racist way. And I think, you know, these these uh, social media outlets have have developed community standards. Those things do admittedly evolve over time as new challenges or new issues crop up, but they need to enforce them even handedly. And, you know, I think it's hard to tell if this was uh, an issue of sort of like comfort in numbers where they all sort of decided to move um, uh, at once. It seemed not. I mean, there were some holdouts. I think NBC and Fox were the last ones to pull it off of television um, and, and refused to broadcast it. But I think the, the broad support for taking this thing down, um, is also a pretty in good indication. I think when you include Fox, that this was not a politically motivated step on the part of these media companies. All right. Well, I'm not sure that arguably racist, given uh, that uh, pretty much uh, the entire Republican Party is uh, arguably racist in the view of at least 10 percent <laughs> of the country, uh, is is the right standard. Uh, uh, but I, 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 I must acknowledge that if even Fox is taking it down, uh, it obviously uh, hit a nerve uh, uh, that evidently has been surgically removed from uh, uh, my body. Uh, Gab is back. What's interesting here is we're starting to see Gab is the uh, – uh, service that um, uh, essentially substitutes for Twitter for uh, uh, people on the right who are afraid they'll be um, deplatformed by Twitter uh, and which had uh, the uh, uh, the anti-Semitic postings uh, of the guy who killed uh, those people at the uh, uh, synagogue in uh, uh, Pittsburgh uh, uh, and in a frenzy of revulsion at that uh, um, company started pulling any support that would allow Gab to stay on the air uh, or on the internet. Uh, but a couple of uh, institutions have stepped forward uh, to 
allow them to stay up for now. Kind of skin of the teeth, though, right? Yeah, there's there. They don't have many friends left um, in the tech industry. And so, it, um, you know, a few more missteps on their part may, um, may be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, but, you know, again, I think uh, to the extent that these companies have <clears throat> have public and clear policies on what's permitted on their um, on their platforms um, and seek to enforce those things even handedly, it's there's no surprise that the people who are on the wrong end of that at the end of the day are going to be upset about it. And particularly high profile conservatives with a platform to speak on this from from, um, you know, the folks at Gab to the Trump campaign to Alex Jones um, are going to be vocal about their opposition and their claims of, of potential bias. And they have a lot of backers, even in Congress. You saw this yeah. over the summer with the Zuckerberg hearings where, you know, a lot of the people on the right were asking him questions about political bias rather than election interference and, and Russia's use of social media. Well, I, I don't think there is any doubt there's bias in Silicon Valley on this stuff. Uh, I, and uh, uh, it's driven in part by fear of their own employees. You saw the Google walkout. Uh, um, yeah. a, a, the employees, the engineers are a scarce resource. And if they fall out of love with a company and uh, 20% of them leave, that company loses its uh, its future. Um, uh, so they are really afraid to do anything that gets out of line um, with the uh, uh, the values of their employees, uh, and their employees are remarkably enthusiastic about shutting down speech that they don't approve of, which is pretty much anything that uh, Donald Trump might say uh, it is something that uh, most of Silicon Valley uh, thinks is well, arguably racist uh, and uh, uh, should have been suppressed. Uh, should have been suppressed more effectively uh, in the campaign. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, and you can see that in this LinkedIn campaign. There's a, an article in which uh, a BuzzFeed goes after LinkedIn saying, oh, there's a lot of hate on, on uh, LinkedIn too. Uh, you know, uh, LinkedIn doesn't seem to be doing enough, um, a, a, which is kind of targeting for uh, social justice wealth warrior mo- uh, mobbing of LinkedIn saying, how come you aren't doing more to, uh, uh, to shut these guys up? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is you know, a platform where this kind of activity really hasn't been seen before. And my guess is they were caught a little bit by surprise. Um, and are now seemingly trying to catch up to where the rest of the industry has been. I guess I would take issue a little bit with the the claim that there's bias in the industry. I think they clearly, as you said, have um, have been significantly influenced by their employees. Their employees, admittedly, do tend to to trend left. Um, and you know, but I think the question that's important is how it manifests itself. And it has driven some companies, as, you, as we've talked about before, in the context of Project Maven, away from Defense Department contracts. It's created fissures between them and governments over the issue of surveillance. Um, but despite all of the conservative complaining, and this is, again, not new. They've been concerning about complaining about mainstream media bias against conservatives for a long time. And this, to me, is is a standard conservative play where you try to say, set up your own platforms that will carry your message and you attack everybody else for being biased against you. And the thing that we've seen is there's actually no evidence to date 
that there's actually bias or controlling free speech. And, and you know, the, the efforts by the Valley to protect free speech, even views that are quite unpopular in the case of terrorism, for example, where they held out for a long time and received quite a bit of pressure, largely from Republicans to, to, you know, restrict that type of speech on their platforms. And, and so there, there's actually very little evidence of bias, but what we've seen at the same time is the absence of evidence doesn't really matter. There was a poll out this summer that showed, I think, 72% of Americans um, believe that there is bias in social media. Well, that and might that, be evidence. <laughs> and, 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 and I, you know, look, uh, Louis Farrakhan is a notorious uh, a hater of Jews. Uh, uh, he still has that coveted blue check, uh, uh, whereas the Proud Boys of uh, Oregon have all been defenestrated by, uh, by Twitter I, apparently because they got into a fight with some Antifa people and uh, Twitter apparently knows better than anybody uh, uh, that the fight was started by Proud Boys rather than Antifa. I'm not quite as confident of that uh, and I'm not sure that getting in a fight offline uh, on, offline uh, means that you have to be kicked off of uh, uh, Twitter, especially yeah. since Louis Farrakhan is still on there, uh, you know, peddling his hate. Check. I think I think the Farrakhan example is a good point. I, I would agree with you on that. I think, you know, it's it's unclear to me, though, that that's clear evidence of bias. And and this sort of takes us to to our final story about Alex Jones, you know, being kicked off and and still yet finding a way to to propagate his videos on the platform. And I think some of these things are evidence of just how difficult it is to enforce these rules, even when you when you establish them, you make them clear and you you put you know an effort into to being even handed and unbiased in your enforcement. There's a, a bit of a game of whack-a-mole, particularly where people have a large following and have have supporters on the platform willing to share their stuff. Yeah. It becomes really hard to manage and and actually kick people off. So a censor's life is a hard one. I, okay. I, I, so Iran is kind of in the news in a couple of ways that make me think that uh, we are taking our eye off the ball of the, mo the most likely next attack. Uh, they've been complaining that uh, uh, they've had a serious cyber attack and they're blaming Israel. Uh, and there's also evidence that the U.S. banks are getting ready to uh, defend against an attack uh, from uh, uh, Iran. Uh, uh, Megan, how, how seriously should we take these accusations? Well, the accusations are really interesting. So Iran is claiming that Israel has been attacking its telecommunications infrastructure through a Stuxnet-like mm -hmm. um, uh, attack. And they're giving almost no evidence. They're not really explaining what they're claiming it was. It doesn't really contort with what Israel's been doing as far as why would they choose this as compared to a defense system, something right. that was more obvious. And so there's just a lot up in the air, and they didn't do a very good job of making the case for attribution or even that this was happening to begin with. And so it just makes you wonder. I'm not saying it 
didn't happen. I'm not saying there's not something there, but it makes you wonder what what the bigger move so here is. So one really possibility is. is they're getting ready for an attack quite, and they want to have a justification for it's, it. It's so possible. That, uh, and U.S. banks apparently are afraid and, and must have some intelligence to suggest that there's an attack coming there, too. Or broader, just undermine Israel at every point. Yes. Well, they could be coming after us, too. Uh, they, they have in the past. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, oh, we should definitely expect them to continue doing that as well. Okay. Um, the Dutch police have broken Iron Chat, which is another one of these really expensive, uh, you have to be a drug dealer to afford it, uh, communication security uh, apps. Uh, uh, and they advertised on their website that they were uh, um, endorsed by Edward Snowden. Uh, 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 Nate, uh, uh, how is that working out for him? Something we agree on, Stuart. We finally found it. Uh, <laughs> Not too well. Um, it's not working out too well for Iron Chat, and it's not working out too well for for Mr. Edward Snowden. Um, a couple of things I think are interesting here. One is, you know, the the underlying fact that that the Dutch police have managed to to break into these Iron Chat messages somehow is um, is the flip side of the encryption debate a little bit. Um, you know, people who have been advocating for strong encryption have largely been saying, you know. Let the governments find their own way in. And, you know, we've seen both in the San Bernardino case with the FBI and now with Iron Chat that governments do have some ability to get into these things when they really work at it. Um, they'll argue it's inefficient and, and ultimately ineffective, but it, it lends a little bit of credence to that side of the debate. Now, as far as Mr. Snowden, you tweeted about him and, and I'll, I'll let you talk about that if you like. But I think the the thing that he continues to show is um, how easily manipulated he is. He's sort of Trumpian in in both his his overestimation of his knowledge um, and his his underestimation of his lack of of experience and and context for some of these things. And you know he went out um, and apparently endorsed this thing. Um, and um, you know it, apparently it's not just the Russians, but it's private companies that can can dupe him into um, doing their bidding. And so, well, to be fair, I, I although this, uh, I, I did tweet at him. I said, how much did they pay you for that endorsement? Uh, <laughs> I, and uh, he uh, said, um, uh, he did not respond to me, even though I know he reads my stuff because he is occasionally, when he finds something he thinks will be embarrassing, he uh, retweets it uh, 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 from my Twitter feed. But on this case, he had... Uh, his uh, the lawyer from the ACLU, Ben Wisner, uh, say that uh, uh, Mr. Snowden has no uh, connection to Iron Chat, uh, not familiar with them, and did not endorse their product. So, um, uh, though it would have been fun if he had, uh, it would have been uh, a, d a delicious irony. He is now saying uh, uh, that he didn't do it. Um, uh, but uh, Iron Chat is, you know. It, Either way, if you buy a product based on Edward Snowden's uh, uh, endorsement, probably means either that somebody is lying or that Edward Snowden doesn't know what he's talking about. In either case, uh, you're probably not well served by spending extra money for that kind of security. Trump and, would verify. 
Yeah, exactly. Or maybe just don't even trust. Uh, 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 the the Pakistanis uh, have just about – they're in the last stages. Uh, uh, I think uh, after bargaining comes uh, uh, surrender. Uh, uh, they've just announced that all of their banks or practically all of their banks have been hacked. Uh, uh, that is uh, uh, pretty scary. Uh, uh, it indicates we've got a long way to go on cybersecurity and um, bad as it is, is here it's even worse in pakistan david well no i was just going to say i mean they first said almost all of the banks then they said most of the banks a lot of money has been stolen they're looking at more than 100 cases and apparently uh, the data of 8000 account holders uh, is for sale on the internet black market so this is not a good thing i uh, don't give investment advice but i would recommend putting your money in a swiss bank rather than a Pakistani bank right now if you want to uh, keep a hold of it. Yeah, and the Pakistanis probably, you know, they're, one suspects that they're selling uh, nuclear technology to the uh, um, North Koreans and the North Koreans are repaying the favor by stealing the money that they're paying for, <laughs> using to pay for it from the Pakistani banks. Um, that would like at least be, be, be a certain form of justice. Uh, uh, Okay. Uh, uh, thanks to uh, uh, to all of you. We're going to turn to our uh, interview now. Uh, uh, it's a panel discussion. It's long, so you've got another hour and fifteen minutes if you're listening to this. So you know this is the time to bail if you're going to bail. Uh, it's a discussion at the ABA's National Standing Committee on Law and National Security, uh, uh, in which we went, managed to persuade um, uh, Tom Fedo, who's the current uh, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary in charge of CFIUS, uh, Ayman Mir, who's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary in charge of CFIUS, Sanchi uh, Jairam, uh, who is uh, head of the CFIUS and Team Telecom uh, uh, unit at uh, uh, the Justice Department, National Security Division, and David Fagan, who's a longtime practitioner in uh, CFIUS, managed to persuade them all to come together and unpack uh, what turns out to be a remarkably if uh, innovative uh, new law on uh, U.S. investment policy. So without further ado, I'm gonna, just going to jump in and see if we can't get a conversation going about uh, uh, this topic. Foreign investment's been uh, an issue, Tom, for Americans really since the 70s. Uh, we go through periods. Uh, we go through periods when we're uh, <clears throat> worried about uh, uh, foreign investment, usually different foreigners each time. Uh, um, and uh, uh, we've come up with a variety of ways of addressing the concerns that we have. And uh, there's been a new law every time we've had a wave of these concerns. Uh, uh, can you give us a sense of, of the history of uh, uh, CFIUS and uh, the requirements of the statute? I'll certainly try. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm actually the new kid on the block, so um, others may have to fill in in some areas. Um, CFIUS, as many are aware, is chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury, and it's composed of uh, 11 um, federal government departments and offices, nine of whom have a, a, a voting stake in, in CFIUS's process, and we can talk a little bit about that uh, later on. And historically, CFIUS has been um, directed at mergers, acquisitions, and takeovers in which a foreign person could gain control of a U.S. business. Um, and CFIUS's role, obviously, is to identify national security risks with those types of investments. Of course, um, 
it's, it's important to say the United States places a great deal of uh, value on foreign investment. And, and just to set the context, I'll note that in 2016, there was, it was valued at somewhere around $7.5 trillion in foreign investment in the United States. Foreign firms obviously uh, offer uh, new ideas and fresh technologies, uh, and that investment is important both to the U.S. economy and the global economy. But not all foreign investment we know is benign. And actually, the history of dealing with uh, non-benign foreign investment uh, precedes world, uh, uh, the 1970s and goes back to World War I. In fact, on the eve of our entry into World War I, Congress passed a law giving the president broad power to block investments in the United States uh, related to uh, wartime. Uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, investment, um, there's also an, a really interesting uh, story uh, that you can look up about uh, German, the, the, um, the Germans creating a front company in the United States to buy up ammunition and, and shells to, um, to uh, distract the United States from producing its own ammunition, um, uh, and the plans were discovered on a New York City subway. So uh, there has been this issue of non-benign investment dating uh, significantly, significantly back in the history of the United States. 1950s and 1960s, that uh, uh, foreign investment uh, decreased. But in the 1970s, uh, with the oil crisis and OPEC, uh, President Ford issued an executive order creating CFIUS uh, to monitor and report on foreign investments. But there was no power to stop or block those, those threats. In 1988, there was the Exxon Florio Amendment. And the president could now block the foreign acquisition of a US company or order divestment where the transaction posed a threat to national security. So far, we've got um, oil money uh, as, as worry one. Uh, 88 is Japanese money, worry number two. Go on. Uh, in, in 1992, Congress passed the Byrd Amendment, which um, uh, required CFIUS to undertake an investigation where two criteria are met. Either the acquirer is controlled by or acting on behalf of a foreign government, or uh, uh, the acquisition and the acquisition results in control of a person engaged in interstate commerce. And then um, in 2007, we have FINSA, the Foreign Investment and National Security Act, uh, which codified CFIUS's uh, role in in the national security construct. And, and, and if I can, uh, that, uh, every, practically everybody on this panel lived through that uh, a bitter experience, uh, and that was driven by sort of post-9-11 uh, concerns about uh, foreign terrorism in our ports. And then we have, uh, this past August, the passage of the Foreign Investment Risk Review and, and Modernization Act, which will be a substantial topic here today. Good. So let me ask Eamon uh, uh, about um, the experience of working through the uh, uh, FINSA and then FIRMA. Uh, you, you saw both of those, if I remember right. Uh, um, uh, what, uh, what drove FIRMA, uh, the adoption of FIRMA, especially in a time when practically nothing gets through Congress? So just to give a, a, a broader 
a quick frame. If you think about the types of risks that we look at, uh, you're talking, you know, one about uh, potential supply disruptions uh, of critical goods and services, you're talking about technology transfer or the loss of technology that can be either used against us or technology that's necessary for our, our national defense. Um, and then you're talking about risks of espionage and, and sabotage. And those types of risks, I think, are, are a result of having an open economy and, and free market. A lot of those risks are, are mitigated in the ordinary course of business by, uh, by export control laws, by uh, U.S. government contracts uh, with companies uh, and the provisions of those, and criminal and national security laws and so on. But I think part of what CFIUS has historically been based upon is this idea that Ownership is different. Ownership actually gives the ability to uh, to change the calculus of a company and uh, either violate their their legal <coughs> obligations and, and so on. And so uh, I think over time you've seen different things challenge that uh, the, sort of the perception of whether or not that balance between allowing open and free trade and investment uh, and uh, the risks that companies may not do uh, willingly or unwittingly unwittingly uh, abide by their obligations. Uh, that, that different types of investment may challenge that. I think what you've seen in the past five years is, uh, is uh, one, a rise of an investment from China, which obviously has uh, challenged, China's different than almost any other investors. You talked about the Japanese, you talked about the sovereign wealth fund, funds from the Middle East. Uh, China is both a, a major e economic competitor uh, as well as uh, a strategic uh, challenge. And then you layer on top of that the, uh, uh, the rapid technological changes, increased globalization of supply chains, uh, and you have changes over the past few years that result in types of investment and risk that we just haven't, hadn't seen in prior years. So I think that's what motivated this latest round of changes. I think what we, there were a number of enhancements that we'd been thinking about for a number of years, but because legislation is, an unpredictable thing. You only open it when, when you really are at the point where uh, you have a critical need. And I think we found that it was increasingly clear that companies were, particularly in uh, related to risks of technical loss of technical capabilities and transfer of technical capabilities and, tech, uh, and technology, that those weren't being adequately addressed under the existing control framework, where CFIUS could only look at transactions that resulted in foreign control of a U.S. business. It's pretty clear that there were instances of non-controlling investment that where the investors weren't passive, even if they were not, not controlling, uh, that would allow them certain uh, levers of influence to facilitate technology transfer. So was, wasn't this the, uh, driven in part by a uh, very influential report that was written for the Secretary of Defense at the end of the Obama administration that uh, came out of the DIUX uh, um, effort. To, uh, and when they went out to Silicon Valley, they discovered all kinds of reasons to be concerned about U.S. technological edge and what it meant for our military technology in the future. Yes, I mean, ab absolutely. That, I think that report was uh, influential in, in a lot of uh, circles. I think the the risks were already being seen even even before that, and I think that sort of crystallized the uh, the concerns, and I think um, resulted in, in in two things. One is this increase. We were seeing at the same time this concern about minority investments, and we were seeing concerns about other transaction forms such as joint ventures, 
which also served as a means that didn't result in control of a U.S. business or transactions that didn't result in control of U.S. business, but were opportunities for, com for foreign companies or foreign uh, countries to essentially acquire capabilities in the United States that you couldn't uh, develop, frankly, through theft. You can just steal, uh, it's not just a question of stealing technology, and yet actually needed to get the capabilities that the companies had in the United States. Um, and you either buy, them, buy it or you enter into a very close relationship uh, 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 or you, and that relationship can be uh, in the form of a joint venture, it can be in the form of close investment relationships where you have, uh, where you have uh, extended uh, contact over a period of time. So uh, David, let me ask you, you've watched CFIUS for a really long time. Uh, were you surprised uh, that um, this bill got through uh, as uh, quickly and with as little fuss as it did? There was fuss, but it was uh, remarkably uh, contained. Um, that's a great question. I was going to start by saying, for those of you who didn't know, Stuart, in 2006, he had a full head of hair before Dubai ports. So he knows firsthand. So Tom, that's what you have to look forward to. I was six feet tall, too. The legislation actually started in 2016 um, and then picked up steam in 2017. Um, so it was not necessarily a push, by the way, from this administration. It started in Congress. Before that, it reflected the, some of the concerns that were being picked up in DIUX, even other transactions that were not identified in the DIUX report had raised some concerns, I think, within the executive branch in Congress. Um, anyone who was in Washington the last couple of years, I think, if you asked them at the outset, does a particular piece of legislation stand a good chance of being passed in a bipartisan fashion by Congress with full support from the administration, you would have to start by saying probably not. Um, that being said, if you looked at the issues that were being examined, they were, they were legitimate issues. It was fair for policymakers and for legislators to take a look in 2017, 2016, 10 years after FINSA and say, well, the foreign investment composition has changed. The global economy has changed. There are more interconnections between the U.S. economy and China. Um, there is more activity, and it is in areas where both economies need to grow. That growth, in turn, is in technology sectors that may be relevant for defense and national security purposes. So it was a perfectly fair question to be examined. And when you start looking at it that way, and you know, nobody is gonna stand up and say, oh, well, we shouldn't be tougher on the Chinese, right? Across any political issue, that is not gonna be, there are not gonna be people pounding the table that way. So when you frame it that way, which was how it was framed from a legislative standpoint, and it had, I think, fairly strong backing from, from this community, from the national security community, not necessarily in terms of the final substance, but in recognition that there were legitimate issues that needed to be addressed. When you looked at it that way, um, and I think it was, you know, give credit to the people who steered it, they steered it in a politically sophisticated way. Um, as it went along, it got some real momentum, so by the end, it was not a surprise. There is a threat of commonality still, as a couple of people noted here, the five public prohibitions we've had in history are Mamco, Rawls, Lattice, uh, uh, QC, Qualcomm, and Eichstron. Um, 
only been five prohibitions in history of the 43 years there has been CFIUS around, and all of them do have a commonality that remains present today and was present at the time CFIUS was formed. So this is more of an add-on to what's already there. I wouldn't characterize it as a shift from what was in the past. We still care about everything, Stuart, so don't try and let people think that we don't care about something in the past, no. Fair enough. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, well, so, China is the com commonality in all of this. Uh, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, the National Security Division at Justice has uh, now a long history of indicting uh, Chinese es uh, uh, espionage actors uh, and uh, um, also has a lot of concerns about uh, uh, Chinese investment from a CFIUS point of view. Uh, uh, how do you view Chinese investment strategically uh, uh, for the future? Well, again, we care about everything. Um, with China in particular, I think Ayman already talked a little bit about just the change in statistics over the years, but um, as Treasury officials have already publicly said, um, acquisitions by Chinese companies accounted for the largest number of notices of any country filed with CFIUS in 2013 and 2014. Um, and in those years, they replaced the UK and Canada as the largest source of CFIUS transactions. Um, that trend continued in 2015, which I believe is the latest uh, year for which um, the official CFIUS stats are available by Treasury. And I mean, the composition of CFIUS transactions tends to be generally consistent overall with the trends in general FDI in the United States. So even if there isn't a one-for-one -one correlation, China has been obviously a rapidly expanding investor. Um, the Rhodium Group also reported that the number of mergers and acquisitions from China increased nearly threefold from 2012 to 2015. So it shouldn't surprise anybody here that we've seen a spike in the number of CFIUS matters where the acquirer is a Chinese company most of which have been the result of voluntary filings. Um, and as the process requires, we individually look at um, each transaction. But um, as a general matter, our volume has increased as well. In 2016, that was a banner year for CFIUS, and the number of uh, filings we reviewed was 172. Um, last year was even busier, with close to 240. And this year does not show any indication of, of slowing. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. So um, I would say that we are still interested in everything. We are still looking at everything individually, but we don't dictate the composition of the folks who are coming before us and what we're looking at. Yeah, I'll just emphasize Sanchi's point that, um, that the CFIUS process is largely voluntary, has been. We're exclusively focused on the national security risks of the particular transaction at hand, so we're very, uh, rigorous in our analysis on the facts and circumstances of the particular case. And so it makes sense that if uh, Chinese investment or other investment in the United States from another country is increasing, that a larger proportion of the cases we look at will include investments uh, from those countries. Of, about uh, whether uh, uh, we treat China just like everybody else, and that it, it, it's no surprise. And, and let me ask David, as a private sector uh, uh, participant in this, uh, uh, do you think China gets special scrutiny? So maybe as the, as the one person on the panel who actually has not been on CFIUS um, and just had the pleasure of living through it for 17 years, um, and therefore maybe um, I can be a little bit more subjective I'll put it that way. Um, 
yeah, China gets special scrutiny. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was remar the remarkable thing about FIRMA was that it passed without China actually being mentioned in the statute, notwithstanding the motivation of it. Um, and everybody in, in the deal community, whether you're on the buy or the sell side or China or not, recognizes that there are a special set of circumstances, um, and legitimately so. There's not, and I think this has been drawn out in this panel, there is not a historical precedent for the two largest economies in the world, including ours, being so intermingled and at the same time, the other economy, our counterpart, being um, perhaps the longest term and most significant national security um, threat um, to the US. And when you have that um, and you have a globalized economy and the like, you have to be able, if you're gonna run a real foreign investment process that allows in the foreign investment that you want, but carefully scrutinizes others to ensure it's not harming national security, you have to be able to identify and differentiate among the threat actors. And so right now, you know, that certainly is China. And I can totally understand and respect why everybody on the panel who um, has recently been in government or is in government has to be very careful about what they say. Um, and that's appropriate. Um, but the reality is that um, we can't, in the private sector, look at a transaction that could go through CFIUS, even if it does not involve a Chinese acquirer and not analyze it from the perspective of what will it mean for China versus the US. So Eamon, uh, you are free at last uh, to uh, uh, speak your mind, but you're remarkably cautious in doing so. Let me ask the question, do you think China gets special scrutiny? To some extent, it's a matter of semantics, right? I mean, you, you uh, in, in, in the I told you so. No, in, in the following sense, uh, any given transaction is a combination of looking at the, the threat, vulnerability, and the consequences, right? And, uh, and so I guess I would differ slightly from what David said in the sense that we're not looking for, to allow investment that we want, we're looking to keep out investment that we think causes a problem. And so if it comes to Chinese investment and you're looking at the particular transaction and it doesn't raise a red flag because uh, you know, there's either no threat or there's no vulnerability or the consequence doesn't raise a national security issue, then even as of the time that I left, which was just a few months ago, we were approving those transactions. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, you take, take it as it's, as, it's, uh, as it's presented, and I think everybody knows uh, the nature of the risks that we face, and I think everybody expects that the committee will scrutinize those that, uh, that hit red flags on any one of those factors. And, uh, and uh, I think that's what you see in practice. So I'll, I'll go back to David. My sense is that uh, the Chinese have taken the hint. I mean, it helps to have a fairly centrally planned uh, economy. Uh, uh, you, can, you can turn off your uh, investment in the United States pretty quickly, and I wonder if that isn't happening already. Um, so let, let me start by saying I, I think your question, which was on the scrutiny, um, as opposed to whether we're open or not open was, was an important way to frame it because I completely agree with Diamond and we're seeing evidence of that. There are Chinese deals that are still getting approved. It's not that there's an absolute block. Um, and that was an important decision I think that was made earlier this year which was to examine things on the facts and not actually have an absolute bar. So I totally concur with that point. Um, there has been, there's been a slowdown um, of Chinese M&A activity and investment. 
Um, certainly the big deals that you saw happening 2015 and 2016 largely are not happening. If they are happening, they're outside the U.S. with a smaller U.S. tail, so a China-Europe transaction. Um, I don't, the, the, the Chinese through, for their own reasons, have instituted capital controls to more carefully examine how money is flowing out of the country and allowing it in certain areas and more carefully controlling it in other areas. The areas that they tend to allow it actually happen to overlap with where the U.S. has more concerns. Um, but, um, so I don't think they've totally turned off the spigot. They have... Um, what we're seeing is that, one, as I said, the big deals aren't happening. That's not just because of China. It's also because if you're doing a deal, you want to have regulatory certainty, timing matters, all of the things that go into an M&A process. And if there's regulatory uncertainty or if the timelines look too long and you're on the sell side, you're going to discount other bidders. And so there's a natural market reaction that's part of this as well. It's not just because of Chinese policy. With that being said... I think where we're seeing the most activity is um, outside of the SOE sectors. The SOEs seem to be... That's the state-owned enterprises? Yes. State, the Chinese state-owned enterprises seem to be, and this is anecdotal, I don't have the actual you know, empirical evidence, but we have pretty good visibility into the deal flow activity, and the Chinese SOEs seem to be more constrained um, I think it's reasonable to infer that that has something to do with government policy also. Um, where we're not seeing the slowdown um, is with non-SOEs who in particular are in the technology sector and have their own investment funds and have a very active um, deal team and deal flow. And those are still being examined, less so um, transactions that would confer control to them um, more transactions that would be non-controlling, and I suspect now with the pilot program that we will get to, more transactions that not only will be non-controlling, but also not have the indicia of the other investment criteria in the pilot program. Okay. Uh, Tom, uh, uh, can you give us some sense from your perch at Treasury what the change in investment trends is, uh, not necessarily as a result of CFIUS, but just uh, uh, are you seeing the same kind of uh, trends in who's investing and from where and in what uh, that, that David's talking about? So I, I don't think I'm, I'm in a good position to comment on trends that I'm seeing from my current position, but uh, I, you know, I would emphasize again a point that Sanchi made in the, in the history of CFIUS, only a handful of of transactions have been blocked. And so a, a couple of things to keep in mind as well. CFIUS is a national security authority of last resort in some respects. When we look at a transaction and we do that threat vulnerability and consequences analysis that Iman uh, alluded to, um, we're, we're asking whether there are other authorities that adequately um, mitigate the risk. And if not, then CFIUS acts and we look to, uh, can we mitigate the risk? Is there a way to enforce a mitigation agreement uh, and, and, and mitigation principles that, that deal with that risk? And so the bulk of transactions are, 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 are not being blocked, have not been blocked or prohibited. And so, um, you know, an investment is looked 
at the with the, the particular facts and circumstances in mind. I'd like to jump now into a, what changes FIRMA has made in the review process and, and give people in the audience a sense of what transactions are going to be handled in a different way. And if you're advising private clients or thinking about the impact on uh, uh, your agency, to know what's, uh, what FIRMA changes. Uh, uh, and Tom, you had said, uh, um, CPS is largely voluntary, uh, but the real um, innovation in firm, or one of them, is that a lot of these transactions are not going to be voluntary. Uh, uh, can you give us a feel for uh, what firma says, um, we don't care whether you want certainty or not, you're going to tell us about this transaction and we'll decide whether to review it? So, so that's a bit of a broad brush. Um, uh, I think it will uh, post firma. It will remain largely a voluntary process. I have to be a little bit careful here because I'm I'm actually on a panel during an open comment period on the pilot program. So um, the pilot program uh, allows. Um, so to, to to back up, Firma allows. Uh, pilot programs to be initiated during the um, pendency of the uh, promulgation of regulations fully implementing the statute. So it gives the government uh, the power to, to take parts of FIRMA and implement it before final regulations are promulgated. And so there is a pilot program right now that will be effective on the 10th of November, and that, in fact, does use uh, some mandatory authority with respect to what is a new concept in the CFIUS process, and that is a declaration, which is intended to be uh, a short form filing of uh, roughly five pages that, um, that provides an opportunity for the government to look at certain types of transactions in, in a certain part of the uh, jurisdiction of, of the committee. And so, um, yeah, there are, th there's a mandatory um, element to that, but, um, but that's with respect to the pilot program. But only with respect to the pilot program. Well, let me, let me ask Eamon, uh, because I, I think Eamon, uh, well, he may or may not want to take uh, credit for being the architect of uh, all the changes in FIRMA, certainly was present as they were developed, and there are a lot of them, and the pilot program kind of pulls all of them together, uh, at least for certain transactions. Uh, um, if you were painting with a broad brush, Eamon, uh, what would you say the biggest changes are in FIRMA? One, the, the move from voluntary to mandatory for certain transactions, and maybe you can tell us what those transactions are or what the statute says about things that must be uh, uh, told to, uh, disclosed to Treasury. Sure, uh, with respect to the mandatory filings, I, mean, I, th I think at least the intent in, in including the statute was to address this particular challenge you have with technology transfer. Once the technology is gone, a post hoc review is not necessarily going to be an effective remedy. Um, so uh, while I think the intent certainly was to maintain a, uh, a system that is largely based upon voluntary filings, uh, I think we recognize that there are going to be those transactions where uh, you need 
to have the ability to look at them before the transaction is actually consummated. Um, I, I think there's, you know, there's a, a tension there. The, the broader the scope of the mandatory requirement, the greater the obligation on the government to provide certainty on a timely basis. And uh, you know, I think um, for CPS going forward, they're going to have to think about that. If, if you're requiring so many things and to be filed, and you can't give people within 30 days a degree of certainty and just leave them flapping in the wind, then I think that's going to cause a lot of uh, unanticipated turmoil. But in terms of uh, sort of major changes, uh, I would say the, the, the core change uh, in, in FIRMA was the expansion of CFIUS authority to cover uh, non-controlling but non-passive investment, the type of thing highlighted in the DIUX report, uh, in, investment in, in venture uh, in uh, startup companies, uh, in Silicon Valley or elsewhere where you get a board seat or, or you get some access to information that you might not be able to get from the outside and it allows you either to access technology or create relationships and so on that would facilitate technology transfer. So I think of this as moving from a CFIUS uh, concern about control of the corporation to being concerned about insight. Uh, uh, understanding of the technology, understanding of the industry trends uh, uh, without regard to whether you can make the company do what you want. Insight and, and opportunity to exert influence, I, I think it's, it's not, to, the statute expands it only with respect to, uh, to uh, critical technologies and critical infrastructure. Um, and then it's very late in the, in the process, uh, sensitive personal data w was added, but I think the first two are the main, main risks there. Um, another thing that sort of came up during the conversation, as I mentioned, was this joint venture point. Uh, that got spun out into, into export control reform, uh, and I think is, although it's not part of the CFIUS statute per se, I think it's something that's very important to, to watch because it is, uh, out of this whole discussion, another area that of of risk that we just as a government had not adequately covered uh, and uh, that was the, the subject of um, a lot of concern over whether or not our existing framework uh, was sufficient to address really a new type of national security technology related risk that we hadn't faced in the past. So David, uh, um, I thought that the, the one conflict that was uh, pretty uh, sharp over FIRMA was this question of export controls and uh, joint ventures uh, uh, where the um, Defense Department had become concerned that companies, U.S. companies, were transferring large amounts of technology to JVs and to partners abroad uh, who then stood up on their own two feet and wandered off in the direction of the PLA. Uh, and uh, they wanted to get better control of that. They originally proposed that that be governed by CFIUS, and that's the one change that uh, I think was significant in the progress of FIRMA from idea to uh, um, uh, actual enactment. Uh, can you give us a little bit of color about that and, and how the final resolution addressed it? Sure. Um, so I think, Stuart, you, you, you nicely framed the issue. I think there was an additional piece of it, which is um, that the export control laws, which govern the transfer of that technology to China or other jurisdictions, um, it's a cumbersome process to identify controls and typically multilateral. And there was concern that as technology sped up, 
um, the export control laws had not, and classification system had not kept pace with it. So it was not only that it was being transferred, but in fact it was being transferred lawfully, but that perhaps the, um, the control system needed to be updated, and there was concerns about that, and frankly, I think there was concerns about the export control rulemaking process being able to move fast enough, and that was one of the things that led um, the original proposals to include this within the CFIUS remit. Um, there was a very strong allergic reaction to that among the U.S. business community, and while I think one of the interesting aspects of FIRMA is typically you have a law that comes along that, that does fairly radically change something that relates to business. You have very strong engagement, typically some pushback from the business community. There was not a ton of pushback among the business community on the idea of FIRMA, um, reflecting that a, among a lot of U.S. companies there was real concern about China. And so at, at sort of there was this conflict within the community that I think led them to not really push back on Firma, except on the one piece, which was the outbound technology transfer. And if you look at it, CFIUS historically and remains um, a, a, an authority that acts where other authorities of the U.S. government are insufficient to address the U.S. national security concern. Um, and we do have export control laws and trade control laws. Um, and so the, the pushback was not that um, the concerns weren't legitimate. It was not that there shouldn't be an examination of the outbound technology transfers. It was rather that CFIUS was not the appropriate authority. There are existing authorities, Commerce Control List, administered under the EAR by the Department of Commerce. You obviously have the ITAR already. Um, and that that was the right place to deal with a set of issues. So, yeah, let me call BS on that. Uh, I, uh, because we had spent at least 20 years with a complete logjam over whether there was even going to be Commerce Department uh, uh, export controls authorized by Congress. In fact, Congress hadn't authorized them, and the uh, administration after administration had to gin up a pretend economic emergency that, so that they could use the International Economic Emergency Powers Act to keep the export controls in place, and then Commerce and the Defense Department were constantly fighting over what would be on that list, and so the list didn't get uh, updated much. Uh, uh, and what's remarkable about the achievement of Senator Cornyn uh, and others in this is that they said, not only are we going to pass this bipartisan bill on CFIUS reform, oh, by the way, we'll, we'll clear out this logjam about uh, the, the Export Control Act and adopt a new one and uh, encourage uh, the uh, Commerce Department and the Defense Department to come up with a list of technologies they're actually worried about this year instead of in 1994. So, Stuart, is your point that it actually was the responsibility of the people who had been in government and legislators to have addressed this before? Is, the, is that? Yeah, if they'd only listened to me then. <laughs> so, uh, Eamon, uh, that took us to the idea of figuring out what technologies we're really worried about. Uh, and that gets us into the intricacies of what is going to be mandatory in the pilot program, because the pilot program is very definitely aimed at a certain set of uh, uh, technologies used in particular industries. Can you break that down for the, for the audience? Uh, sure, the, uh, I mean, the pilot program, I think, is a step towards 
uh, addressing uh, sort of the immediate need of transfers that investments are already occurring. And I think it's uh, the way the pilot program is structured is it's based, it's keyed off of uh, the export control list as they exist today. Uh, and then it refers to companies that are producing those technologies or you know, developing those technologies uh, and are either themselves in a listed industry uh, or are producing them or developing for a, a listed industry. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I think there's, there's like 20 some uh, industries listed by, by uh, the NAICS code. Um, and, but I think the real, the real impact of this uh, will ultimately be felt when commerce is able to put out a rule that adds in the emerging and, and foundational technologies uh, that are not currently controlled in the list. If you think about something like artificial intelligence, um, it's not clearly covered under any current export control uh, provision, um, but clearly an area of great concern from a national security point of view in terms of uh, what capabilities are being developed, what technologies are being developed in the United States and, uh, and uh, foreign countries may have an interest in. And so I think that's when you'll see um, a lot more of the impact. I think, uh, you know, I, I think we'll have to see what the impact is. And David's probably talking to a lot of his clients currently and probably can give a sense, and, and you, Stuart, as well, of what you're, well, what you're seeing in terms of the, the likely impact of the, sort of the, uh, the, the list as it occurs today. So let me ask David to jump in. What, what is the, the impact of the list approach uh, and the pilot program itself? You mean other than funding my kids' college education? Uh, nothing wrong with that. Um, so um, it, the pilot program um, is, I would say, pretty radical in the sense that it, it changes things from an evaluation, diligence, analysis standpoint to be determined how much impact that actually has on deal flows, what CFIA sees, and the like. Um, and just to, to recap what the pilot program does, um, the, the firma requires CFIUS to implement mandatory declarations with certain types of transactions in these other investment categories when they involve a substantial interest of a foreign government. Um, that is still to be implemented through rulemaking. Firma also has a provision that says, and CFIUS also can mandate dec declarations with respect to other investments, whether they include foreign government interest or not, into the critical technology area. Um, and that's where the pilot program is. Um, the pilot program applies to any equity or contingent equity investment made by a foreign person into a business that manufactures, fabricates, produces, develops designs or tests, um, critical technology, or um, in one of um, 27 industry sectors, or for use in, in that industry. So um, it's, it's broad in a lot of respects. Um, it is not limited to a particular country. It applies to any foreign person, for those of you who work in the CFIA space, you know any foreign person is any um, person who themselves are controlled by any foreign government, foreign national, or foreign entity, which, and the control definition is very broad. Um, so there are probably a number of US companies that don't realize that they are foreign persons who could potentially be captured by this. 
um, and then it mandates filings in those areas. So at, at this point, um, what the, the immediate effect is you have to go through, if you're doing a deal that involves equity or contingent equity, and contingent equity is defined as anything that could ultimately convey or convert into an equity and voting interest. Um, and you can have you know, a convertible note that has one share that can be converted downstream to equity or voting, and then it's a contingent equity under the pilot program. Um, when you're doing deals in any one of these 27 sectors, or that may involve something that manufactures, produces, directs, de uh, develops, designs, tests a technology into those sectors, you have to evaluate up front, do we have a foreign person? Is the structuring something that might trigger this? Is this a critical, te is critical technology potentially in scope in any of these ways, which in turn relates to a number of lists. The US government likes lists. The private sector is not so accustomed to dealing with as many lists. Um, the most salient one is the commerce control list in certain categories on there. And then you analyze whether you're in the 27 sectors. The, that last piece actually isn't that hard. Um, although for those of us who have not been in the government, we, it's not like we were walking around with NAICS codes on the tip of our tongue for the last you know, 10 years uh, or longer. Um, but once you look them up, they're pretty broad and you can figure out whether a company is in that industry. They're mainly used for statistical purposes or have been up to now. I, 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 are you seeing any sign that people are lawyering their classification, thinking, well, maybe I should uh, restate what, what, what my customers uh, are, our business is? No, we have not seen any sign of that. Um, what we are seeing is a very careful analysis on the export control piece of it. Because it, it, for the mo if you have a select agent or toxin or you're dealing with nuclear material or you have ITAR, right, that's fairly clear. That doesn't require a ton of analysis. The commerce control list, as many of you will be familiar in the room, it's not like every company has gone to the commerce department and had a full um, classification of all the technologies that they may have. There's a lot of self-classification in that also, and maybe they have or maybe they haven't closely examined it. So what, what we're seeing is, first, a lot of questions on structuring, um, and second, um, a, a lot of questions on whether you can have a critical technology. Now, within that, there's a fair amount of ambiguity. What does it mean to design or develop, right? Um, testing seems to be more clear. Manufacturing, fabricating, and producing seems to be more clear. But developing or designing, there's a little bit more ambiguity in that. Um, and that's where we're, where we're seeing the most questions. There's other, and on the structuring side, um, it becomes more complicated again if you've had a past foreign investment and you haven't gone through CFIUS, or if you're in the fund world, that's where we're seeing a lot of questions. Don't you think that the purpose of the, uh, um, or the, uh, this decision to say, we're not interested in control, we're interested in insight, uh, and we're gonna give you a list of stuff that you have to file, I, that strikes me as driven in part by the past success of the private bar in structuring uh, transactions in ways that make the uh, buyer happy uh, uh, and leave the government without recourse, uh, and that has led to the decision to sweep a much broader group of transactions into at least potential review. Uh, I'll, let me ask Eamon to, to address that, because uh, uh, you were there for that discussion. Yeah, certain, certainly um, we saw transactions being structured to avoid CFIUS review. 
but I don't think that it was necessarily only lawyer, lawyer, lawyer's advice that got us to that point. I mean, clearly, uh, there, uh, there are efforts to acquire technology through a whole range of means. And uh, as CFIUS started to, uh, to uh, become more assertive or aggressive uh, with respect to transactions with that worth in its scope, I think it was only natural that uh, there was going to there were going to be efforts to look for perhaps less effective but still uh, other means to access the, the technology, and you know frankly I think that will continue to be the case. The the, the statute itself, while giving CFIUS significant additional authority, did leave some things on the table, and there are, there are judgments in any obviously in, in any legislation about how far you're going to go. Are you going to are you going to deal with the instance where the foreign a uh, company is setting up uh, an office right across the street from a major U.S. company and hiring away its its engineers. Uh, that's that's a different type of uh, of regime. So I think, uh, sure, uh, uh, companies w will be looking for ways to get their capital to the companies that are looking for the capital. Um, uh, but I think there's also something more at play uh, uh, in relation to you know, concerted strategies to acquire technologies and, and using a whole array of means to, to actually effectuate that. From DOJ's perspective, last year we co-led more cases than we had in the previous five and a half years combined, and there are some reasons for that. Um, DOJ, I mean, these stats are in part due to the high value of seemingly ordinary information. So thus far in this panel, we've talked a lot about the pilot program and technology and China, but there are other things to consider too. Um, and so while I can't talk about specific CFIUS cases, I can give you some examples of some of the other work that the National Security Division has done that kind of illustrates some of our concerns. And some of them are, you know, have a regional nexes that have something else um, uh, and not China related at all. So just to give one example, in a recent action, we found that at the outset of its work for DOD, a government contractor committed that only U.S. citizens with a security clearance would work on certain projects for the U.S. military. We found that that very same code that was intended to run our military's computers, including the classified network, some of you know as CIPRANET, was written and stored on computers in Russia. That was transiting networks that Russian intelligence officers have the ability to access and collect from and uh, do so without notice, notice pursuant to a Russian legal regime called SORM. We also found that there was no definition of the scope of the project and its requirements, so ultimately the Department of Justice settled the action with and reached a non-prosecution agreement with the firm closing the criminal investigations without charges last December. But I mean, what that illustrates, and there are a number of other cases I could describe, but legal regimes matter. We look at whether a foreign country has a system like ours, uh, where the government needs to make at least some showing to an independent judge before it can compel a US party to provide information. Remote access matters. A company's network is only as safe as that of the least secure user or vendor that accesses it. And secure remote access requires vigilance. On the other hand, uh, words on paper can matter less. So contracts, security agreements, security plans, and so forth will not protect a company or its assets unless the management actually ensures that they are followed. Um, and then finally, data matters. Even personal information can be a matter of national security. Protecting that privacy of individuals um, is something that we care about, and there are several reasons for that. So my understanding is that sensitive personal data is singled out 
by FIRMA as a reason for uh, uh, special scrutiny for investment review, and uh, a, a DOJ has been particularly attentive to that concern. Well, I think the whole U.S. government and all agencies care about that. I mean, there's a convergence of cybersecurity and information, and frankly, that undergirds every industry we have, every NAICS code that we just discussed. Um, so it isn't in and of itself its own issue. It's something that is connected to every other issue. And I mean, people, I'm sure, realized 10 years ago this may not have been a concern, but in the last decade, a few things have changed. First of all, the volume and variety of data has increased exponentially. Information that was previously not stored in a digital form now is, and at a rate that, uh, at, at the rate that those data are being created and the velocity of data growth, that's increasing. Um, so for an example, take cars. Not long ago, a car was essentially a mechanical device or an engine with seats that moved you from point A to point B. And whatever limited electronic components it had were self-contained. Um, but today's cars, by contrast, certain communication devices, sensors, GPS, navigation, other kinds of uh, services, um, they're all computers with a variety of functions. <clears throat> they allow you to check your fuel levels and tire pressure on cell phones. Um, you can track a stolen vehicle over the internet or call for help in an emergency. And your kids can enjoy the same entertainment in your backseat as they are at home. So some of those things are good but, um, and useful for the driver and passengers, but, but obviously they can be useful to other nefarious actors as well. Um, you can, there are similar examples in the market for DNA testing. Um, so, for example, according to one report from last year, DNA testing with respect to health, longevity, paternity, and ancestry, that has become an $830 million industry. Um, and one industry leader in that particular area has claimed to have information about more than 6 million people. Sanchi, let me ask you about this. this is, uh, you're, you're right that sensitive personal data about us is everywhere now. It's, it's uh, uh, like... Uh, uh, Pig pen, where uh, the Linux, uh, the Linux character, uh, we just keep dropping it ev everywhere we go online. Um, it, there is no federal regulation of sensitive personal data, and it's export to anywhere, right? uh, unlike the European Union. When when the Justice Department or other parts of CFIUS reviews a transaction uh, that involves sensitive personal data being transferred or insight uh, being allowed, uh, it has an ability to say no or to impose mitigation. Um, when, the trans when there is no transaction, there's no jurisdiction. Uh, uh, you've made the case that it's something to worry about, uh, but should we worry about it outside of the CFIUS context? Should there be uh, broader regulation of transfers of sensitive personal data? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing a trend in this area generally with GDPR that became effective earlier this year. There was recently an order um, the Australian government put out um, in August, and its own TSSR and security regime became effective September 18th of this year. In New Zealand, we have TIGSA, or they have TIGSA, we don't have TIGSA. But um, the point is that everybody is, is thinking about this, a lot of people are thinking about this, and um, I think what many people um, have understood is that uh, information that seems unimportant or purely personal or irrelevant can in fact be used to threaten national security, and that's the nexus that we care about. Is it a national security issue? And frankly, in the aggregate, the information that may otherwise seem irrelevant can actually provide 
commercial or cultural insights that might have a monetary or other use. Um, and the information can also offer a pattern of life of a company CEO or government official and could also be used to target that individual. Now, some people might say, you know, nobody cares about my data or what my kids are watching on TV in the back seat of my car, but the fact that most people in a data set might not be targets themselves um, actually provides little comfort because anyone on social media has learned that we are more connected than it seems from our daily routines. Um, Folks know in 2016 that Facebook reported that its American users were actually separated by fewer than three and a half degrees of separation on average. So extrapolating what that means offline, a private citizen's information can be useful for more, you know, for what it tells us about maybe that person's brother, the CISO at a major bank, or her aunt in the CIA. Our concerns are exacerbated by the fact that the traditional methods of de-identification of data, such as anonymization or encryption of content, may be defeated by, for example, sensor and geolocation data or by cross-referencing sanitized data against other data sets. So this is, this is very broad. Uh, at the end of the day, since all of this information can be turned into pattern of life uh, uh, analysis and any of the individuals who are, uh, whose pattern of life can be extracted from this might be working for uh, uh, SOCOM or the CIA, there is a national security element to this. Is, uh, but the implications of saying we're worried about that and we want to control it uh, are that um, uh, you need a regulation that addresses the handling of almost any personal data by almost any private sector uh, entity, right? Well, I mean, I think, as I noted earlier, um, there are uh, correlative efforts underway um, in a number of different governments to address what this question is and what the scope of the question is. I can tell you that in certain um, circumstances, we're certainly interested in it. Um, it's reflected by uh, the, the cases that the National Security Division undertakes. Um, but it can also be reflected in surprising ways. Um, you know, one of the cases that uh, a lot of my colleagues and I have talked about is uh, this example of a few years ago when a Midwestern consumer goods company was the victim of what appeared to be a run-of-the-mill intrusion. So in that matter, an intruder had obtained unauthorized access to their customer database and had obtained personally identifiable inf information for their customers. The company's IT personnel worked diligently to eject the hacker, but he kept coming back, and eventually he threatened to expose the company's customer information unless he was paid a ransom. So I'm sure at this point everyone's heard 20 stories about that kind of thing, if not more. So around that time is when the company contacted the FBI, and the FBI determined that Ardit Farizi, who was a Kosovo citizen studying computer science in Malaysia, was one of the hackers who'd gained unauthorized access to the victim's PII. FBI determined that Farizi um, uh, had a financial motive in demanding the ransom from the company. Um, he, the PII he stole was actually not destined for the black market, but the data was of interest because among the tens of thousands of customer names and emails he stole, there were more than a thousand addresses that ended in .gov or .mil. So ultimately, Freezy had used that information to produce a, uh, a kill list, essentially, of approximately 1,300 USG civilian employees and US military personnel, and he provided that to the Syrian-based ISIS member named Junaid Hussein. 
So, I mean, what happened at the end of that is a few months earlier, um, Hussein had posted that kill list and purported to include the names of addresses of uh, hundreds of members of the U.S. military. And in, in fact, soon after he received the information from Farizi, Hussein used Twitter to publish the PII of 1,300 government and military customers of that company. DOJ charged Farizi with violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, with conspiring to provide material, material support to ISIS, and uh, were successful in obtaining the extradition from Malaysia to the United States, and ultimately he pleaded guilty. But what that story illustrates, though, is the number of connections between what can seem relatively innocuous and com com only commercial in nature. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of these types of stories that we can talk about, but this one is actually connected to a counterterrorism. Yeah, I, I, well, the other, the other part of that story is that uh, it's a great triumph of attribution, because not only did we attribute the hack and, and arrest the guy who did the hack, uh, we found the guy who sent the Twitter message about uh, his uh, 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 kill list uh, and uh, blew him to kingdom come, uh, suggesting that at least, uh, you know, if you're going to have to be on a kill list, uh, being on ISIS is maybe not as bad as being on ours. Um, uh, but you, you, you had another lesson you wanted to draw from that. The point is that uh, what may seem um, innocuous or irrelevant or uh, mundane or unimportant can actually have uh, an, an extraordinarily larger consequence, not just for your own commercial business, but for the interests of the nation. Um, and we see this, uh, obviously, many times over in a way that uh, folks who are not in our world, um, you know, they don't see it. So. Um, my only point is to say that the connections are real, and the reason we care about these things is exactly because of stories like that one. That is the last word. I want to ask the audience to join me in thanking a really excellent panel. All right. Uh, thank you to Dr. Megan Reese, uh, David Christ, Nate Jones for joining me. This has been episode 239 of the Cyber Law Podcast. I promised I would read some of the more entertainingly uh, abusive uh, uh, reviews that we've gotten uh, on iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, this time I'm going to give you two uh, to see if you can do better than this. Uh, they they kind of come as a pair as I see it. Uh, I, here's, here's one uh, uh, that says, um, quite critical, maybe not so entertaining, uh, because California is taking a state says laboratories approach to net neutrality, the host made a comment along the lines if, of, if South Carolina wants to take down their statues of John Calhoun, looks like California might want to put them up. I get that the host did not mean that California is as bad as the Confederacy, actually, uh, Calhoun was dead by the time the Confederacy came along. But, uh, but this comparison went too far and was horribly offensive. I am really interested in cybersecurity law, but this was so out of line I may stop listening. So there we go. I, I, I think one star out of that one. And here's the, 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 the one that comes right after it. Uh, millennials beware. Don't be fooled by the fact-based discussions in this podcast. Do not find yourself intrigued by listening to actual high-ranking government employees discussing cybersecurity. These people are all over 30 and are not to be trusted. Five stars. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure that Megan is over 30. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, she is uh, clearly not to be trusted and deserves all five stars. Uh, uh, okay, um, please do uh, see if you can do better than that. Uh, we're running out of entertainingly abusive uh, uh, reviews already, uh, so I'd love to see some more. Uh, as I said, I'll take any abuse at all for five stars. Uh, uh, if you've got somebody to suggest as a guest interviewee, send it, uh, us the uh, suggestion at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we'll send you a cyberlaw podcast mug, highly coveted if they come on the show. Uh, listen to, uh, if, you, if you're interested in finding out what we're going to talk about, you can follow uh, my Twitter feed where I sometimes uh, uh, list the stories that I think are worth talking about. Uh, and for upcoming shows, we've got uh, Mika Yoyang of The Third Way, uh, who will be talking about her cyber enforcement initiative, which is an interesting approach to uh, improving cybersecurity. And uh, Representative Jim Langevin uh, uh, of Rhode Island, uh, who is uh, the Democrat most uh, knowledgeable about cybersecurity, in my view, in Congress, uh, will be coming on uh, now that uh, it's clear he'll be in the majority. Uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett's our audio, uh, audio engineer. Michael Beaver's our intern. I'm your uh, uh, host, um, uh, uh, always trolling for uh, abusive uh, reviews that give me five stars. Uh, we hope you'll uh, join us uh, as we once again uh, provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.